0: Mel Gibson's latest acting role. You might have seen a movie called The Beaver. He plays a severely depressed man who finds that he can communicate again with people around him using a hand puppet beaver with a British accent. And without telling you too much about the plot, um, one of the parts of the plot revolves around his son, His son has long despised his dad even before he started speaking with a puppet. In fact, he has post-it notes in his room of all of the things that his dad does that he despises and he doesn't want to repeat. Things like bites lip, massages eyebrows, excessive use of all right, loses track of time, just little things that he doesn't want to repeat, that he despises his dad. In fact, he tells a friend that he's going to take a road trip and at each stop, he's going to cathartically throw off one of his dad's traits because he just does not want to be like him at all. Maybe some of you feel like that. Maybe you did not have a good relationship with your father and you don't want to be like him at all. Or maybe you're more like me, and you want to be as much like your dad as you can. We can all see our parents in the way we act, and kids, if you don't see that yet, you will. And then we even point it out to our spouses, don't we? You're just being just like your dad. Your mom does just like that. And sometimes that's a compliment, and sometimes it's a put-down, so be careful with that one. Today's scripture shows us that the biblical patriarch, Isaac, is a chip off the old block. He has turned out a whole lot like his daddy, Father Abraham. John Hartley, a commentator, says that in a preview of this chapter, just to show you the similarities before we even read it, both men faced famine in the land. During the famine, both go to live in a foreign setting and identify their wives as sisters for self-protection. Both dig wells and face opposition from the Philistines. Both make a treaty with an Abimelech, king of Gerar, and both name a well Beersheba. So it's going to sound really familiar today if you've been here for the last few weeks and hearing about Abraham's life, and even we have more that... Isaac builds altars and calls on the name of the Lord and both face challenges to the promises that God gave them of offspring and land. So Genesis chapter 26 is Isaac's chapter. We've seen a little bit of him as a child almost being killed by his father as as God commanded. And then, as a forty-year-old single man, whose his dad arranges marriage for him through a servant, remember that chapter. And later, we'll see his interactions uh, with his sons and his wife. But this chapter is really gets Isaac as the main character. In those other stories, he's sort of a supporting cast. Here, he's the main character, and it's also, I think, the least taught on. Part of Isaac's life. I don't remember hearing much teaching or preaching on this. I think a lot of the reason is because it's so repetitive. We've heard this. Why does Moses keep bringing this up? Um, But also because there's not an easy moral to Isaac's life. He's a lot of good mixed in with some bad, and it kind of jumps back and forth. But this is the, and this is also the chapter that's kind of squeezed in between. If you remember last week, the end of chapter 25, uh, Esau, his older son, sells his birthright for a a bowl of stew from the younger son, Jacob. And then the next chapter, Jacob is going to steal Isaac's blessing. And so those are usually taught together, and so we just skip right over chapter 26. But not us, not Potomac Hills. We, we got it. This is a good chapter. Um, this chapter is like a play with five acts or five scenes. So we're going to break them up. We're just gonna, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to take it a scene at a time. So let's start with the first five verses. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham... I think Moses just wants to let us know. This is You've heard this before, but it's a different time. This really happened to Isaac. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." I had the most unbelievable sandwich from Wegmans the other day. Um, then I got back to work, and I was going back to the sermon. I realized how little, I just it reminded me how little we have to worry about our food and where it comes from, and in contrast to how often there are famines in the Scripture And there's three in the book of Genesis alone. There's one in Ruth, one in Samuel, one in Kings. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are constantly talking about famine and pestilence. And when famine hits, usually the place to find food is in the Middle East is go down to Egypt. That was just a good place, different agriculture, uh, the Nile River. Go down there, and, and we think that Isaac was heading there. God says... No, Isaac, stay where you are. And as part of that, he says, this is the land where I want you. And the rest of this, these verses here, 3 through 5, is now God giving Isaac all of the promises, the oaths that he swore to Abraham, passing it on. He says, you will have my presence you will have my blessing. You will have this land. You will have descendants. Nations will be blessed because of you. And God tells Isaac that the reason he's inheriting this is because Abraham was obedient. Now, the, the covenant was given by God and was a grace-given, undeserved blessing. But God still takes pleasure in Abraham's obedience. Not a perfect obedience, as we saw in Abraham's life. And we see, we see him doubt God at many points in his life. But obedience is the proper response to grace. Abraham exhibited it, and now Isaac needs to. So Isaac listens and obeys. Let's pick it up in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech king of the Philistines looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, She is your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So again, Isaac goes from trusting in what God tells him to do and where to live to all of a sudden now he doesn't trust him with his life and with his wife. He uses his dad's old line, she's my sister, about his wife hoping to save himself. I mean, these towns must have had horrible reputations, for a man to be so scared to admit that the beautiful woman next to him was his wife. So let's not judge these guys too bad. There might have been good reason for it, but they just placed such great faith in God and heard such great promises that now the mistrust is jarring. My dad had two Put downs that he used a lot when I was growing up. Not necessarily on us, but he was watching football or something. Um, And this will give you a taste of his uh, humor. They were theological insults. Uh, One was, You unbaptized Arminian. (laughs) And the other one, You uncircumcised Philistine. I guess he probably used them on us, but I remember him screaming at. Football players and anybody playing the Steelers. But here we have an uncircumcised Philistine, God's enemy, a pagan king, rebuking the man of God. Abimelech is the king of Gerar, um, and we've heard his name before because there was an Abimelech 90 years ago when Abraham last had this you know, situation where he lied about his wife. But it's most likely a just a title. So it's probably a different man, it's probably a, a name like Pharaoh. And so this is a new man. Um, and before anything happened to Rebecca, Abimelech figures out that they've lied. Apparently, for the good of everybody involved, Isaac is not as good a liar as his dad was. And this Abimelech wasn't as quick to force foreign women into his harem like his predecessor had been, and it says they had been there a long time, so he he had the opportunity, and he was probably a lot more perceptive. Uh, he sees Isaac and Rebecca laugh doesn't seem like a big deal to us, man a woman laughing. Why would you conclude they're married? Well, there was probably a lot more distance in that culture, between men and women, probably even between brothers and sisters, because that's what they were pretending to be. Remember? But Abimelech knows, and maybe God's given him this wisdom as he had in previous circumstances. But Abimelech calls him in and rebukes him, says, if one person had slept with your wife, this whole community would have been judged. He understands how bad this would have been, the adultery. And perhaps the king had heard about what had happened with Sarah. Maybe that had been passed down, and God punished the king and his household with Sarah and Abram and it, when, when that Abimelech took her into his harem. But ne- either way, Rebekah and Isaac are put under the crown's protection. And God uses, despite Isaac's sin, he uses the graciousness of this pagan king to greatly bless his chosen people. Let's take a big section next as we see these blessings, verses 20, 12 through 25. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So things are going great for Isaac. A little speed bump in the road, uh, but now he's out of Gerar. Uh, He's really had a great start in life. He has the security of knowing that he's God's chosen son. He's favored by his father. He had a great wife blessed with twin sons, one he even liked. And his business now prospers. His business prospers after a severe famine. He sowed and reaped a hundred times what he sowed. That's a prosperous business. And I'm, I'm sure all the farmers in that area are having bad years. And, and here comes Isaac with this huge crop. Now, you can't always say that someone's wealth was given to them by the Lord. Oftentimes, they get it illegally or other reasons. Um, we, we know that the Lord allows all things. But here the scriptures say in inspired terms that the Lord blessed him to the point of great wealth. But what does it bring him? His neighbor's envy and fear. And so first they they kick him out of Gerar. You're, You're too powerful, get away. And then they go after his business. They go after his wells. And they claim that the water is theirs digs three wells here. Uh, The first two are disputed over. And so he names them, the Hebrew names mean hatred and contention. And the final one is left alone. So he's finally got a well and he names it peace or enlargement. Isaac here shows great restraint from really prolonged You know, fighting over these wells. He just keeps moving on until he finds a well that no one harasses him about. And here we have, I think you'll recognize a little bit of the rivalry that we saw in Genesis 3.15. We got to keep this concept in our mind as we read throughout the Old Testament that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to be at war. And the Philistines are almost always the seed of the serpent. They're constantly battling the Israelites. And so here there's this tension. And in addition, digging wells was a claim to the possession of the land. And that's what these covenant blessings are all about. You get to have this land eventually. And the Philistines resented that they're threatened by it. And so they strike back, and that is a threat to God's covenant promises of Isaac's descendants owning the land. Another commentator summed it up like this far from possessing the land, Isaac found himself evicted from part of it by the present occupants, far from the nations of the earth coming to bless themselves in his offspring, as God had promised in Genesis 26, 4, the nations at present seemed far more inclined to curse him as a nuisance. But that's not the end of the chapter, thankfully. Comes, here comes Abimelech back to see Isaac, seeks an audience with him. 26 through 33. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Fikol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? Seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you. They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So Abimelech comes, and he wants peace. But Isaac, from the start, is skeptical. Right? He said, you hate me. You threw me out. But Abimelech seems to think that he treated Isaac well. No, I've done nothing but good to you, and I sent you away in peace. Peace. And the truth, as it usually is, is probably in between there, between these two perspectives. And Abimelech has really changed his mind about Isaac. I think before he saw Isaac's blessing as a threat, he saw it with fear. And he may still have fear, but now he's looking at it and he's realizing this is God's favor, and I need to make a treaty with this man. I don't need to just kick him out. And so he says, let's make peace. And I think here Isaac shows graciousness again. Gets over his resentment. In fact, he makes a feast. What a good host would do then. And they sleep on it, and um, they exchange oaths in the morning, and everybody's happy. And then Isaac gets more good news of another successful well. But all is not perfect in Isaac's life. Last two verses. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basmath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So here we we have a note about Esau marrying Hittite women. Pagans, unbelievers, not who the Hebrew people were supposed to be marrying. And Isaac and Rebekah are not pleased with his choice. Now here I I read a lot, people, commentators said, this shows Isaac's passivity. Because what did his dad do when he needed a wife? He went and arranged it, sent the servant, took care of things, said, we don't live near our our family, near our relatives, our clan, so we're going to go find you, a wife among our family. Isaac doesn't do that for his son. And so his son finds these two pagan women. And I think deeper here, Isaac doesn't seem to know that Jacob will be the heir of the covenant instead of Esau. Now, God had revealed to Rebekah that the older would serve the younger. But Isaac still acts as though Esau will be his covenant heir. And so I think he sees here, he's upset that the older brother, who would naturally inherit everything from him and would get the covenant promises, I'm sure he's distressed knowing that God is not going to be pleased. With his arrangement, with his marriage. Okay, this is a long chapter, and there are a lot of different ways that a preacher could go with this. I mean, I read a bunch of commentaries, a few sermons, and and they've got applications going all over the place. So I listed, I think, in your uh, outline, and I'm going to talk to you, is talk through. I, I came up with ten. Top ten applications that you could take from Genesis 26. I don't expect you to have these all done by Tuesday. But here's some things, here's some topics that we've hit on with this passage of Scripture. Things that we could maybe dig deeper and challenge ourselves with. Some, past, some preachers would go here. They would say, when there's a spiritual famine in your life, you need to avoid the Egypts. In your life that promise relief but will really result in problems. Right? We could turn this sermon into uh, the nature of addictions and unhealthy ways to deal with stress. Tell people go to the places where God wants you and where he'll, He'll deal with you. That's one place we could go. Number two, pretty easy application of the earlier part don't lie. Isaac, like his dad, lied and and almost brought massive problems on his family. And we would continue to teach that God is a God of truth and holiness. So have nothing to do with untruth. That would be a good application. Third, same idea in, in that same section early on, honor your wife. Don't treat her like the patriarchs did their wives. We could turn this into a marriage sermon and talk about how we honor or dishonor our spouses. Um, Another application, don't make decisions in fear. Make decisions in faith. That's a good application. Find, know that you can trust the character of who God is and make decisions based on that, not on your fears. Number five, I I tried to imagine what Joel Osteen and maybe some of the prosperity preachers, what they would do with this passage. It wasn't very hard to think. I think it would go something like this. God's favor will mark your life. He wants you to bring in business a hundredfold over your neighbor so that they will have to come to you And acknowledge that it's God blessing you. What happened to Isaac can happen to you if you just have enough faith and send me a thousand dollars. God wants, (laughs) God wants his people to be wealthy and prosper. You could go there as we apply this sermon. I mean, Isaac was wealthy. God really prospered him. That's not one we do here. But number six, we could use this kind of the middle section of this chapter and say this is a lesson on persevering through failure, right? When you dig a well and somebody blocks it, pick up your shovel and dig another one, right? All of us have projects that we try to do, and we fail, somebody gets in our way, hey, persevere through that. We could do that. Number seven, be a good neighbor. A lot of this uh, story is about Isaac and how he dealt with, with the people around him, especially his enemies. Uh, but Isaac tried his best to live at peace with those around him, and you should too. When your enemies want to make peace because you're prosperous, accept that. When they want to quarrel, just walk away. Number eight, these last few are a little more spiritual, a little more legitimate. If you caught in verse 28, Abimelech says to Isaac, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. I think a lot of preachers could jump on that and say, do people see the Lord in your life? When they see you, do they say, wow, you must have been spending time with God. We could really guilt you over on that one, but not a bad application. Number nine, verse 25, Isaac builds altars. He builds an altar to the Lord because he sees God's great blessing. And he takes the time to thank God and to worship him. I and mean, this would be a great one right before Thanksgiving, as we are, right? I mean, take some time to search your life for God's blessings and don't miss that opportunity to worship him and thank him for what he's given you. And number 10, don't be like Esau and marry an unbeliever, especially two of them. (laughs) Who you marry will affect your spiritual life and your family. So we could, again, turn this into dating advice, marriage advice. And some of those are pretty legitimate applications. Um, A few of them are just good old-fashioned advice. Um, A lot of them are little works-oriented. But let me take a different uh, stab at what maybe is the most important application from this passage. Baptize your children. What? Was he reading the same passage that we were? I know Dave's getting old. Did he confuse this with another section of the Old Testament? There was no baptism in there, was there? No, there wasn't. But let's go back early in the chapter. God tells Isaac, essentially he says, I promised a bunch of things to your dad, and now I'm promising them to you. So listen again to verses 3 and 4. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I think the major theme of this passage is God extending his covenant to the second generation. Right? Abraham was the first. The, the very beginning of the Israelite nation. And he got all the promises and oaths and blessing and this covenant. And Moses, the writer, needs us to know, and he needed his original audience to know, that all of those promises were going to be passed down And Moses' original readers were the generation that was just about to enter the promised land. And they needed to know, hey, God had been faithful to our parents in the earlier generation, bring them out of Egypt. Is God still going to be faithful to bring us into the promised land? And Isaac needed to hear that from God. And we need to hear that. Today, we need to claim God's covenant promises for each succeeding generation. We need to do it as families. We need to do it as a church. And that's why we baptize babies. And that's why we baptize fifth and sixth graders when they haven't been. That's why we baptize adults, teens, if they haven't been before. Baptism now is the first act of declaring yourself part of the covenant community or your children. And it's not about often the... uh, someone counters and says, well, that baby can't make a decision to follow Christ. We understand. It's not about a baby deciding to follow Christ. It's about us saying, God, we acknowledge that you enter into a covenant with your people and we want our children to be part of the covenant. And God blesses our act of faith in working in our children's lives. Remember Acts 2, 38-39 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. These are people who are just converting to Christianity, so it makes sense. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. But we don't just leave their spiritual lives with just baptizing them, right? We also teach our children the scriptures. We pray for and with them. We discipline them when they sin. We bring them to a Bible-believing church where they will be taught the word and where they will be part of a covenant uh, community of fellow believers. But ultimately, we trust that God will save our children and bring them to a saving faith that they will own individually. So there's a message to parents, but there's also a message to children of believing parents. And that is that you must embrace the faith for yourself. You're not automatically a Christian because your parents were or because you were baptized. And for those who don't have believing parents, you're, not, you're certainly not excluded from faith. It's not baptism that saves. It's not being part of a covenant community that saves. It's faith in the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament believer has a different set of promises. We are not under Abraham's covenant in the sense that Jesus brought a new covenant. Romans 5, 8, 9 is just one of many passages we could talk about. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God works in family. God takes his covenant promises and passes them down as he did from Abraham to Isaac, as he does from us to our children. He works salvation and faith in those whom he calls into the covenant with him forgiving their sins through Christ's shed blood. And all who believe that said, Amen. Father God, thank you for this scripture. I thank you so much for our study of the book of Genesis and how we see things That we missed before, little details and descriptions. And as we wrestle to understand why you included what you did in there with Moses writing it, as we try to understand these ancient customs and ancient ways of living, Lord, teach us the things that we need for our faith. Teach us the nature of who you are, a gracious God who takes the initiative. You don't wait for us to find you because without your prompting, Lord, we would never come. We are enemies dead set against you in our natural flesh. But Lord, you change our hearts. And we rejoice that you work through families. And that when one member of a family becomes a Christian, that is a beautiful opportunity for him or her to start a new legacy with generations coming after that call on the name of Jesus. And Lord, you honor that and you command us to baptize and to include in the covenant community So, Lord, teach us and renew us as we reflect on these words. God, we, there are all kinds of things we could add to do our to-do list from this passage. A lot of good ways to live, to be honest, to be good neighbors, all of those things. But in a deep way, may we understand the gospel here. That, that your covenant calls us into a relationship and our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Help us to take seriously our responsibilities to pass that faith on to the next generation, to our children, our grandchildren, to the children of this church. And those of us who are children, I pray that they would understand that they need to personalize their faith. They need to make it real in their lives and turn to you and follow the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.